Crocodilian crypto crime. The Blaine streak continues. And a reason to learn to touch type. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin. Paul, a very happy day to you, my friend. And a very happy day to you, Doug. I know what's coming at the end of the podcast, and all I'm saying is hang in there because it is exciting, if mildly alarming. But first, let's start with tech history. This week on August 7th, 1944, IBM presented the Automatic Sequence Controlled Calculator to Harvard University. You may better know this machine as the Mark I, which was a Frankenputer of sorts that mixed punch cards with electromechanical components and measured 51 feet long by 8 feet high, or roughly 15.5 meters by 2.5 meters. And Paul, the computer itself was almost obsolete before they got all the shrink wrap off of it. Yes, it was done towards the tail end of the Second World War. Of course, American computer designers at that time didn't know that the British had already successfully built high-performance digital electronic computers using thermionic valves or vacuum tubes, and they were sworn to secrecy after the war for reasons we didn't understand last time we spoke about it. So there was still this feeling in the States that valve or tube computers could be more trouble than they were worth because thermionic valves run really hot, they're quite large, they require large amounts of power. Would they be reliable enough, even though they're loads and loads faster than relays, thousands of times faster in switching? So there was still that feeling that maybe there was time and space for electromagnetic relays. The guy who designed the Colossus computers for Bletchley Park in the UK was sworn to silence. And he wasn't allowed to tell anybody after the war, yes, you can make a computer out of valves, it will work, and the reason I know that is I did it. Wasn't allowed (laughs) to tell anybody. So we did get the Mark I, and I guess it was the last mainstream digital computer that had a drive shaft, Doug, (laughs) operated (laughs) by an electrical motor. And it is a thing of absolute beauty, isn't it? It's Art Deco. If you go to Wikipedia, there are some really high-quality pics of it. Like the ENIAC computer, which came out in, what, 1946, which did use valves, both those computers were in a little bit of an evolutionary dead end that they worked in decimal, not in binary. I should have also mentioned that, although it was obsolete the moment it hit the floor, it was an important moment in computing history, so let's not discount it. Indeed, it could do arithmetic with 18 significant decimal digits of precision. Contemporary 64-bit IEEE floating-point numbers only have 53 binary digits of precision, which is just under 16 decimal digits. All right, well, let's talk about our new Buane. This is another bug with an impressive name, or Buane as we like to call them. This is three weeks in a row now, so we've got a good streak going. This one is called Downfall and is caused by memory optimization features in Intel processors. Tell me if that sounds familiar, that some sort of optimization feature in a processor is causing cybersecurity problems. Well, if you're a regular Naked Security podcast listener, you'll know that we touched on Zenbleed just a couple of short weeks ago, didn't we? Which was a similar sort of bug in AMD Zen 2 processors, and Google, which was involved in both the downfall and the Zenbleed research, 
has just published an article in which they talk about downfall alongside Zenbleed. It's a similar sort of bug that optimization inside the CPU can inadvertently leak information about its internal state that is never supposed to escape. And unlike Zenbleed, which can leak the top 128 bits of 256-bit vector registers, Downfall can leak the entire register by mistake. So it doesn't work in quite the same way, but it's the same sort of idea. If you remember Zenbleed, that worked because of a special accelerated vector instruction called V0Upper, which is where one instruction goes and writes zero bits to all of the vector registers simultaneously all in one go, which obviously means you don't have to have a loop that goes around the registers one by one, so it increases performance but reduces security. Downfall is a similar sort of problem that relates to an instruction that, rather than clearing data, goes out to collect it, and that instruction is called gather. Gather can actually take a list of memory addresses and collect all this stuff together, stick it in the vector registers so you can do processing. And much like Zenbleed, there is a slip twixt the cup and the lip which can allow state information about other people's data from other processes to leak out and be collected by somebody running alongside you on the same processor. Clearly, that is not supposed to happen. Unlike Zenbleed, where you could just turn that feature off the mitigation will countermand the performance improvements that the gather instruction was supposed to bring, namely collecting data from all over memory without requiring you to do it in some kind of index loop of your own. Obviously, if you notice that the mitigation has slowed down your workload, you kind of have to suck it up because if you don't, you could be at risk from someone else on the same computer as you. Exactly. All right. Sometimes life is like that, Doug. It is. We will keep an eye on this. This is uh, Take It for the Black Hat Conference that we'll uh, get more info about, including any fixes coming out. Uh, Let's move on to uh, when it comes to cybersecurity, we know that every little bit helps, right? So if we could all just take up touch typing, the world would actually be a safer place, Paul. It probably could have been a Buane if the authors wanted. I can't think of a catchy name off the top of my head. But they didn't give it a Buane, they just wrote a paper about it and published it the week before Black Hat. So I guess it just came out when it was ready. It's not a new topic of research, but there were some interesting insights in the paper, which is what minded me to write it up. And it basically goes around the question of when you are recording a meeting with lots of people in it, then obviously there is a cybersecurity risk in that people may say things that they do not want recorded for later, but that you get to record anyway. But what about the people who don't say anything that is controversial or that matters if it were to be released, but nevertheless just happen to sit there on their laptop typing away? Can you figure out what they're typing on their keyboard? When they press the S key, does it sound different from when they press the M key? Is that different from P? What if they decide in the middle of a meeting, because their computer's locked, because their screensaver kicked in, what if they decide suddenly to type in their password? Could you make it out, say, on the other side of a Zoom call? And this research seems to suggest that you may well be able to do that. It was interesting that they used a 2021 MacBook Pro, the 16-inch version, and they found out that basically, for the most part, all MacBook keyboards sound the same. If you and I have the same type of MacBook, your keyboard's going to sound just like mine is. If they take really carefully sampled sound signatures from their own 
MacBook Pro under ideal circumstances, that sound signature data is probably good enough for most, if not all, other MacBooks, at least from that same model range. You can see why they would tend to be much more similar than different. Luckily for you, there are some things you can do to avoid such malfeasance. According to the researchers, you can learn to touch type. I think they intended that as a slightly humorous note, but they did note that previous research, not their own, has discovered that touch typers tend to be much more regular about the way that they type, and that means that individual keystrokes are much harder to differentiate. I'd imagine that's because when someone is touch typing, they're generally using a lot less energy, so they're likely to be quieter, and they're probably pressing all the keys in a very similar way. So apparently touch typing makes you much more of a moving target, if you like, as well as helping you type much faster, Doug. It seems it is a cybersecurity <laughs> skill win. as well as a performance benefit. <laughs> right. And they noted that the shift key causes trouble. Yes. I guess that's because when you're doing shift, unless you're using caps lock and you have a long sequence of capital letters, you're basically going press shift, press key, release key, release shift. And it seems that that overlap of two keystrokes actually messes up the data in a way that makes it much harder to tell keystrokes apart. My thinking on that is, Doug, that maybe those really annoying pesky password complexity rules have some purpose after all albeit not the one that we first thought. <laughs> okay, then there's some other things you can do. You can use 2FA. We talk about that a lot. Use 2FA wherever you can. Don't type in passwords or other confidential information during a meeting and mute your microphone as much as you can. Obviously, for a sound-sniffing password fisher, knowing your 2FA code this time isn't going to help them next time. Of course, the other thing about muting your microphone, remember, that doesn't help if you're in a meeting room with other people because one of them could be surreptitiously recording what you're doing just by having their phone sitting upwards on the desk. Unlike a camera, it doesn't need to be pointing directly at you. But if you're on something like a Zoom or a Teams call where it's just you on your side, it is common sense to mute your microphone whenever you don't need to speak. It's polite to everybody else, but it does stop you leaking stuff that you might otherwise have thought entirely irrelevant or unimportant. Okay. Last but not least, you may know her as Rosalcon or the Crocodile of Wall Street, or not at all, but she and her husband have been ensnared in the jaws of justice, Paul. Yes, we've written about this couple before, a couple of times on Naked Security and spoken about them on the podcast. Rosalcon, aka the Crocodile of Wall Street, in real life is Heather Morgan. She's married to a chap called Ilya Lichtenstein. They live, or they lived, in New York City, and they were implicated or connected to the infamous Bitfinex cryptocurrency heist of 2016, where about 120,000 bitcoins were stolen. And at the time, everyone, wow, $72 million gone just like that. And amazingly, after a few years of very clever and detailed investigative works by US law enforcement, they were tracked down and arrested, but by the time of their arrest, the value of bitcoins had gone up so much <laughs> that their heist was worth close to $4,000,000,000, million, $4, million up Man. from $72 million. And it seems that one of the things that they hadn't banked on is just how difficult it can be to cash out those ill-gotten gains. 
technically they were worth 72 million in stolen money but there was no retiring to florida or a mediterranean island in the lap of luxury for the rest of their lives they couldn't get the money out and their efforts to do so created a sufficient trail of evidence that they were caught and they've now decided to plead guilty they haven't been sentenced yet but it seems that she faces up to 10 years and he faces up to 20 years i believe he is likely to get a higher sentence because he is much more directly implicated in the original hacking into the bitfinex cryptocurrency exchange in other words getting hold of the money in the first place and then he and his wife went out of their way to do the money laundering and in one fascinating part of the story well i thought it was fascinating one of the ways that she tried to launder some of the money was that she traded it out for gold and taking a leaf out of pirates are from hundreds of years ago buried it that begs the question what happens if i had 10 bitcoins stolen from me in 2016 and they have now surfaced do i get 10 bitcoins back or do i get the value of 10 bitcoins in 2016 or when the bitcoins are seized are they automatically converted to cash and given back to me no matter what I don't know the answer to that, Doug. I think at the moment they're just sitting in a secure cupboard somewhere. Presumably the gold that they dug up and any <laughs> money that they seized and other property and the bitcoins that they did recover because they're able to get back about 80% of them or something by cracking the password on a cryptocurrency wallet that Ilya Liechtenstein had in his possession. Stuff that he hadn't been able to launder yet. What would be intriguing, Doug, is if you the know your customer data showing that it was actually your bitcoin was the one that got cashed out for gold and buried do you get the gold back gold gone has up gone as up much. too yeah but still no, it hasn't up. gone up anywhere near as much yeah <laughs> so i wonder if some people will get gold back and feel quite good because i think they'll have made a two times or a three times improvement on what they lost at the time but i'm thinking i wish i got the bitcoins because they're more like 50 times the value so very much a question of watch this space, isn't it? It is with great pleasure, I say. We will keep an eye on this. And it, now it's time to hear from one of our readers and strap in for this one. On this article, Hey Help Desk Guy comments, RazzleCon was the answer to a question during a cybersecurity class I took. Because I knew that, I won a $100 hacker gift card. No one knew who she was. So after the question, the instructor played her rap song and the entire class was horrified. Ha ha which prompted me to go look up some of her rap songs on YouTube. And horrified is the perfect word. Really bad. You know how there are some things in social history that are so bad they're good? Like the Police Academy movies. So I always assumed that there was an element of that in anything like music, that it was possible to be so bad that you came in at the other end of the spectrum. But these rap videos prove that that is false. There are things that are so bad that they are bad. <laughs> and this is it. All right. Well, thank you for saying that in, Hey Help Desk Guy. And if you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thank you very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.